I'm Brian Lyles, and it is go time. It's Go Time, a weekly podcast where we discuss interesting topics around the Go programming language, the community, and everything in between. If you currently write Go or aspire to, this is the show for you. We are back for another episode of Go Time. This is episode number 17. Today on the show, we have myself, Eric St. Martin. Brian Kettleson is also here. Hello. And Carlicia Campos. Hi. And today, as our special guest, a man who needs very little introduction, everybody knows him from both the Go and Ruby world, uh, Brian Lyles. Hi, how you doing? So today we're going to talk about uh, mono repos and mentoring and kind of movement building and anywhere this conversation goes, because you've been around the tech scene uh, and the public eye for quite some time and have many interesting things that we could talk about. So wherever this conversation takes us. So you want to tell uh, the audience a little bit about yourself for those who may not be familiar with your work? Yeah, I'm Brian. And who am I? Well, I've actually, I have the great pleasure of being able to say that I've been in tech for 20 years. I've only had tech jobs, mostly in the cloud industry or what we call the cloud industry. I actually started off in ISP land, then moved to server land and security land. And now I'm in cloud land. Also, what I like to do is I like to make sure that um, tech is fun and inviting for everyone. You know, I've worked in a lot of places and I've seen a lot of things. And I just like to, to go out and say that, hey, you know what? It doesn't really matter who you are. You can do this. I've worked with a lot of people. And throughout the years, I've seen that anyone can have the aptitude to do what we do. And I just want to encourage everyone to do it. So it's interesting that you say that. I was actually just having a conversation with a friend that's down visiting um, and he drives truck and he's, he's been interested in tech, but he feels like he's not cut out for it. Like he just doesn't have the natural ability to do that. And we actually had a, a, you know, probably a half an hour conversation that's similar to that, that it's really about time investment and interest than it is, you know, sheer ability that, you know, we kind of pedestal people and we think that only geniuses are capable, but if you put in the time, you know, anything, learning to play the guitar or something like that, you're, you're not going to read one book and then, you know, be a master. No, no. And, and really what it comes down to is how you learned. I had a little bit of a boost. My father was in the military and he, and he got to see things that normal people wouldn't see. And one day he came home with computer books and they were C programming language. And I was 11 or 12. He said, you should learn this. And I put a lot of time into it. So my first language was C, my second language was 6502 assembler, and my third was 8080 assembler. And that's weird. Who would ever do that? But what I see is that it's all about context. Uh, what I'm doing right now is thinking of ways to teach people machine learning just as a beginner thing. And one of the things you need to learn for machine learning is uh, linear algebra and graphs. Everybody hates graphs and matrices. They think they're really hard. But you know what? Whenever you learn that in high school or in college, what they probably didn't do was give you context. If you understood the problem that you were solving in a context of words you could understand, anyone can learn this. And it's the same with computer programming. I think, though, too, that a little bit of there's so much to know. Uh, when you're first coming into the field, you feel like because you can't grasp all of those things, 
that you're not cut out to do it. And I think over time, you start to embrace the unknown, right? Like as developers, we're presented with new and challenging problems every day that many times we start the project and we're not even sure how we're going to do it yet. And people who are trying to get into the field and break into it, they, they start trying to do something and they feel like because they can't figure it out, that they're, they're just not cut out for it. And they wait for that moment that they know everything they think they need to know to do the job. Well, I look at it like double dutch. You ever double dutch before? Really hard, actually. If you look at it, you know, there's two ropes. They're moving in two different directions. And you always see the person who's getting ready to go next. They're always rocking back and forth, rocking back and forth. And then they just jump in. And that's generally how I approach almost everything. I've solved problems what I, that I've heard afterwards from PhD statisticians is you shouldn't have been able to do that without that knowledge. And what I've learned from that is you have to be pretty naive in, in, in the way that you think about yourself. There's nothing you can't do. I live that life. I could go out and, you know, I could beat Usain Bolt. But until I get on the track and actually beat him, in my mind, I'm actually winning. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't work for everything, but for computer, for, for computer things, it allows you to at least get the confidence to go out and figure out what you need to do rather than being overwhelmed with all the complexities. I read a book uh, two years ago called, uh, I'm pretty sure it was Guitar Zero or Guitar Hero about a, a PhD guy who had zero musical talent and zero, uh, just no aptitude for music, couldn't, couldn't tap his foot to a beat. And he took a sabbatical and decided as a learning project to write a paper about whether it was possible for someone with absolutely no musical talent to become a good musician. And it turned out that really it is just a matter of, of learning and knowing what to learn is a key of that. I think in the computer world, when you start off with nothing and you say, I'm going to become a programmer, that's great because it's easy to make a hello world app. But we have so many peripheral things that we have to know and learn to make real world applications. I think that might be the hard part for people really starting off. So you can make hello world and you can compile, but you don't know anything about talking to data or databases, you know, APIs. You know, there's, there, there is a really steep uh, learning curve in terms of getting actual work done versus just getting started. I think that's a frustrating point. And I agree with that. One of the problems I think that a lot of people who use methods to teach programming is that we use programming as a means to an end. And that's actually not it. Programming is a tool. It doesn't matter what language it is. What you're trying to do is solve something. Like right now, just as a project, I'm writing a Slack bot. Uh, you know, I don't know much. Well, actually, now I know more about Slack box, but I know what a bot does, and I know what the inputs are, and I know what I want it to do on the output. So once you understand that, then you can just peel back one layer and figure out, well, how do I print something in an output? What we try to do whenever I've seen some of the curriculums from these boot camps and other programs where they're just teaching, this is a variable. This is, you know, if you're in a, in a web browser, this is how you make this happen. This is how you make this happen. And then even if you go down to Go and we can say, well, this is a Go routine, but we don't ever tell people the mindset or what it feels like to be happy whenever they get it right. So they don't even know how close they are to getting it right. So they can't make those bridges themselves. And you notice what I'm saying? It's all, it's all the same thing. It's just teaching. But really what I'm trying to do is paint the happy path for everyone so they can understand what it feels like to succeed. And people want to succeed, so they'll fight harder to get there. I think there's a lot of stigma in it, though, too, because 
we, we're constantly comparing ourselves to the rest of the world, right? So a highly curated list of the best the world has to offer. So it's easy to feel like you'll never get there, but there's also kind of being comfortable in your own skin and accepting that. You know, there's plenty of people way smarter than me, but that's okay, right? Like I tell people what my number one skill is, is being able to be thrown in the deep end and figure out how to swim. You know, just being comfortable with learning and not knowing and exploring and kind of like you said, you know, you start off on these projects you know nothing about. Um, I, I often try to get into electronics projects. I know nothing about electro, electrical engineering or electronics engineering, but I just kind of explore away and make mistakes and, and learn along the way. And that's okay. Um, I think people just, be, like you said, they don't know how to, to figure out what was a success, right? Like that they've, they've acquired some knowledge, even though they don't feel like they learned web development yet. They learned something and, you know, that's, that's a check mark on the, the list of that foundational knowledge that you need to kind of, uh, Katrina Owen spoke to this at the GopherCon talk, you know, to, to start drawing those connections between things. When you first get into the field, there's just too much to know. Yeah. And, and something you said, you said that you don't know how to measure yourself against anyone else. I have a problem with that. I measure myself against myself. I'm ex- when I'm doing okay, I'm exactly one Brian. And then when I'm doing a little bit less, um, you know, I'm maybe nine tenths with Brian. And hopefully the, the measure of Brian actually increases as time goes on. What I don't ever do is compare myself to anyone else. And the reason why is no one else grew up like I did. We didn't grow up poor, but we didn't grow up rich. I didn't get to go to all these good colleges. My parents are like, you're going to pay for it if you're going to go. And by the way, you're going to go. So I, didn't, I had, a lot of, had a lot of distractions. But what I learned to do is realize that, you know, who's going to get you there? Brian's going to get you there. Not that person I'm comparing myself to. So I just stopped comparing myself to other people. And it helps you. It helps your ego whenever, you know, there's Jeff Dean's out there and I read his papers. You know what? Jeff Dean and Brian Lyles are two different bases. We just don't compare each other. I really like this conversation because talking about Brian's in the third person just makes me feel strange. <laughs> <laughs> That's a conversation that I can't have. I can't talk about Brian's in the third person. It, it just makes me wonder whether I'm half of a Brian or two thirds of a Brian today and which Brian am I half of? Well, you know, we've discussed this before and there is definitely superiors, the superiority and the concept that my name has a Y versus an I. So you know where you stand. I do. I, I, I'm at, at, at most, I'm 95% of a Brian. But you never compare. But like I said, don't compare yourself to me. And I think that that's probably a good takeaway too, is to, is to constantly be evolving yourself and not look to other people. Cause like you said, you know, you're, you're comparing yourself to the, your perception of somebody else. So because they're smarter than you in one area, you assume they're smarter than you in all areas. And that's impossible, right? Like everybody's going to have specialties and it's, it's all about where you put your time and energy. And, and how you evolved as a person and in your career. And you know, you're going to, you're going to be a natural at some things, you know, I, I can do server-based stuff pretty well and distributed systems type stuff, but it, you put me working on a game engine. I'm, I'm going to be clueless, you know, it's all triangles. Don't worry about it. It's all, tri- <laughs> it's all triangles. Polygons <laughs> everywhere. So what was your, your take on speed kind of bringing back uh, Katrina Owens talk, because it, 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 I think it ties in a lot to this, you know, how, how to 
teach and how to give people small wins. What was your take on, on that talk? Well, my number one take is, first of all, I, I adore Katrina and I've met her many times throughout the years and, and I love to see her speak. The second thing that I took from that was I liked the, the visualization. I loved her slides. Oh, yeah. Weren't they beautiful? It was one of those talks where well, someone put some thought into that. And I speak a lot and I never use pictures in my slides. So anytime I find that someone uses a lot of pictures and they use them well, I was pretty impressed. The third thing is that I find that we, and this is a point that I think she kind of brought up, is that um, who's, who's, who owns tech? Who's, who is tech? What is tech? We need to work on making tech more relatable to certain people. Some people want to just run up the hill. They're, they're those free rock climbers who don't need any type of bracing or anything like that. But other people, you know, like, you know, I don't know, maybe my children will actually, you know, they want to take the stairs or actually the, the upwardly facing escalator ramp where it's slow, but it still gets you to the same place. And really what we need to do is figure out how to break those barriers down. And I'll tell you, I'll be the first person to let you know, I don't know how to do that. But what I do know is that we do have a need for it. And I'm not scared to take a step back sometimes and say that my way is not the best way and that we should be evaluating more because, yeah, I am a person of color, underrepresented person, a minority or whatever else you want to call me, a brown developer. Um, my path into this was weird. I don't meet a lot of people who look like me. But um, that's not to say that another black woman or another Latina or anything else will have the same path. So we need to work on breaking these down to make them more relatable or these concepts down to make them more relatable to more people. And like I said, this is not easy. It's extremely hard. And we can't we're not going to find answers this generation. It's going to be a generation or two down the way, but we need to make it better. And I'm listening to uh, you talk about how you don't compare yourself to other people. I totally compare myself to other people. I do too. Yeah. And I think it's useful for me to do so. So I, I hope it's in a healthy kind of way that I do that. I mean, there is totally the unhealthy aspect to it that I'm thinking, you know, I, uh, I'm not as good at that, as that person and I should be. But I also try to make it so it's in a way that I am seeing, I'm looking at the happy path for myself, just like. Brian Lyles was saying, you know, when he's trying to teach, he's trying to show the happy path, what's possible for the person to achieve. And I think that is awesome. It's very productive to try to teach people that way. Because uh, just making a side note, it, it's hard to do something until you see what's possible. And then you just go for it. At least for me, it happens like that. But as far as comparing myself to other people, when I look at, at other engineers, and I see, wow, they have 10 years of experience or, or they have five years experience and look how much they accomplished. And I look at the projects they worked on and I'm just in awe. And I, I start thinking, wow, I should aim for that as well, because that looks interesting to me. Those things, I, I love to know those things. How do I get there? For example, I just discovered uh, Jack Lindamood. He spoke at GopherCon as well. He was not on my radar until recently. And I'm totally in awe of the things that he has done and how, he, how well he writes. His blog post about Go is amazing. Uh, his blog about Go is amazing. And I'm thinking, how, how did he get to work on those projects? How did he get there? 
because I didn't run into those opportunities. Do I have to carve these opportunities out? How do I do it? Do I need to get a mentor? Do I, do I need somebody to pull me in? How, how do people get to that point? So I'm trying to find a way, say, for example, I'm, I look at people who are at a certain level, for example, um, in a Sombra, she works at Fastly as well. I, I am totally an admirer of, of hers and she speaks at, at conferences. She runs the paper with papers we love and she reads papers. So I'm trying to like emulate the things that she does to try to become that type of professional. So I'm always trying to emulate people who I admire, people who work on things that I find interesting to like, okay, how do I get my chance to get to work with projects that these people are working with? Because they sound so interesting to me. And I, I don't totally know how. Uh, other than just try to emulate what they do. So I have a thought on that. And specifically with Inez, and I enjoy listening to Inez speak. If you ever get a chance to hear her speak in person, it's amazing how fast she speaks and how information dense it is. It's actually, it's quite an event. But one thing that I would ask Inez is not really how she does what she does, but ask her why. Ask her the feelings that she gets whenever she does papers we love or talks about all the crazy computer science stuff. Because it's not, because we look at her success and how far she's come, but we don't understand her impetus for doing it. And that's what we need to understand. It's more, it's always, and I tell people this all the time, it's not the how, it's the why. Why do we do what we do? And once you understand why she does what she does or why someone else does what they do, then you can understand how they're doing this and how they're getting this success. Yes. So, um, so just to clarify, because I don't want to leave people with the wrong impression. I run into a lot of things. I run into a lot of people and a lot of things don't resonate with me. So for example, when I started getting to papers we love, we just started a chapter here in San Diego. Um, that resonates with me. I want to have... Uh, that kind of knowledge and that medium appeals to me. So I know how I feel when I, when I run into these things. When I look at somebody's work and that work resonates with me, I already know, I know how I feel and that's all I need to know. And maybe asking them how they feel will help me a little too, but maybe they'll feel awful about it and that would dissuade me. But the point is, there are things that we could be working on that resonate with me how do I get, and then I, I, I do want to know the how. I want to go to the next step. How do I get involved with that? How do I get enough knowledge so that if that project's going on in my company, I can be one of the, the people working on it because I have the skills. So uh, there's kind of two points to that that I'd like to point out. Kind of the whole, how you said, you know, this person was relatively unknown and, you know, within five years became this. I think we see that with businesses too. It's the myth of overnight success, right? So you see people and, and it looks like they were completely off the map and in, in five years they became somebody prominent, but you don't see the 10 years before that, right? So, you know, for instance, before I got a really good paying tech job, I mean, I had been programming kind of for fun little stuff on the side for something like five years or something before I even had a programming job. So, so there's kind of, all this stuff that leads into it. And we see what happens afterward. We don't, we don't see everything that happens before the spotlight is, is pointed in that direction. But to the other point, um, I, I'd like to start seeing people share their stories. Like, how did you get into tech? Because I think that, that humanizes people and you start to see that 
it was a hard, long road traveled that, you know, it wasn't this just immaculate thing where they just, you know, in two years became some prominent engineer. There's a long line of things before that, that we just didn't see. And, and even backgrounds kind of, uh, uh, Brian Lyles pointed out, you know, the way you grew up, right? Like I didn't, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. I dropped out of high school. I went back for a GED, completely self-taught. So every, like Brian said, like everybody has their own path and there's, there are many paths that lead to the same place. So just because yours is different doesn't mean it's wrong. And I think the passion and the desire to do well and the interest in the topics that you're working on is what really, really gets people successful because you can get lost in your work. You know, you can go home after whatever your day job currently is and you can lose five hours into it just because you're, you're just drawn to it. Yeah, I like that idea a lot. And Cassandra Jill from GoBridge, she's, she had the idea of a, a blog post series where people will write blog posts uh, anonymously telling about their story. Uh, we are going to be seeking people who have uh, what we would call a different story from the mainstream. And I think they, they're probably the mainstream more than, the, than what we think is mainstream because it, there's so much diversity and we just don't, I don't think we tend to talk about it. I love the why question too, because I think the why is really, I, I think that that's a very good point, Brian, that the why really is what matters because it's always going to probably end in passion. If somebody did something that really became a hit, it's probably because they were just really driven for, for whatever reason that, you know, the technology interests them, the problem that it was solving interests them, you know, things of that nature. I think that's what it's going to boil down to. Yeah. You almost never see technology succeed just on the basis of being cool technology. You know, that's at least in my experience. Uh, in fact, that might even be the kiss of death for a technology just because it's amazing technology if it isn't solving an interesting problem or you know causing you to think differently then it's just great technology but not necessarily something that could be successful and i think that that same thought pattern goes with with uh learning and programming you know you it, you could have a person who's a, a brilliant programmer if they don't care about what they're doing um, you know they're probably not going to stay a programmer long I always say this when people say, um, how do I get into programming? And I always say, you have to really love it because if you don't love it, you're not going to last a long time. You have to love it because it's very rigorous and demanding. Um, I think you have to have a certain, certain uh, aptitude to dig deep and take the next step. Even though, you know, a lot of times it's not easy, but you have to keep doing it. Otherwise, you don't get anywhere. I think people need micro successes to, to develop the love for it, right? You know, most people probably got into programming, you know, for one reason or another, and then they did something and that feeling that I built this, you know, came out of it. This is a similar thing to, you know, a contractor, right? Like long, hardworking days, you know, you, you bang your thumb with a hammer and all that stuff. But the exciting part is when you step back and you look at that finished product and you're like, I built that. You know, and people need those wins. And then I think it takes a different frame of mind, but I don't think that you have to have it to begin with. You can shift it. You know, I, I, so as an example, I had a friend over one day and we have like these crazy RC cars and you break them more than you drive them. 
So um, we're sitting there working on him and he's getting really frustrated with his. And I'm just sitting here and, you know, he's like, I don't know how you do this, like how you can sit there and take it apart and put it back together and then keep tweaking and not get frustrated. It's like, I just look at it differently rather than feeling like this, the act of doing this is preventing me from what I want to do, which is driving the thing. I enjoy the process. I like sitting around, you know, working on stuff and figuring out problems and having a beer and, you know, chatting with a friend while we're working on it. So I think that you can shift your mindset too to where, you know, something not working is not, uh, doesn't cause you anxiety, but it causes excitement where this is a puzzle to solve. You know, I'm, I'm going to figure this out. And once you shift that mindset, things become much easier. And, and you know, that's a pretty important point there. And I use this a lot in my life. Uh, I'll give you a good example of something that I've done more times over the years than I can actually account. Uh, the impression is that Brian is some super programmer. And yeah, I do know a lot of languages. I think I'm up to about 20 now. But the reason why is because it's never because of a language. It's always because I wanted to learn something. The first gopher con that I went to, I didn't know Go. But I saw all these nice people. And I knew Brian from before. And I knew of a couple people from before. And I'm like, well, this is kind of cool. If these kind of people want to come to this kind of conference, maybe I should learn their language. So what did I do? Well, the first thing is, I said, well, I work at DigitalOcean. What can I do at DigitalOcean with Go? Because we weren't actually using Go for, there was maybe one tiny Go project at that time. Well, I said, well, I want to benchmark something with our cloud. And I said, well, can I write an API in Go? Or can I write this code in Go? Because I don't want to write it in Shell or Ruby or anything like that. No, there wasn't there. Well, that was my first project right there. My first project was writing an API client for DigitalOcean in Go. Was it good? No, it was horrible. But does it still exist? Yeah, it still exists. But it's also allowed me to move on. So I've been able to take my little win from writing this few hundred line thing in Go to writing now the official API client for DigitalOcean in Go. And where did that come from? Well, I, I actually have the ability. I boot up hundreds of virtual machines some days. And I got tired of writing software to do it. So I said, well, I want to do this for command line because I love command lines. And I just started writing it. In my, in, on my, in my spare time, when I was on an airplane, when I, at, when I was at a conference speaking, when I was not doing something else. And that evolved into our official command line client. And that's the thing that you see. You see the success of the software that I wrote, but you didn't see that it, this came from an idea that I had two years ago. And I just slowly made it happen. And I think that's what people need to realize. We don't need big wins. I have this whole theory about being rich and why I can tell you why you don't want to be rich. You just want to pay all your bills and actually have one more dollar than you need to spend every month. When I'm talking about after you pay yourself, after you save for vacation, after you pay for retirement, after you pay all your bills. Because guess what? If you have 10 more, what are you going to do with that money? If you're just going to sit on it, it's not doing society any better. You might as well just give it away. So, what I'm saying here is that. We just should build up slowly. And, you know, we build up our savings slowly. We build up our knowledge slowly. We build up our personalities and our brands slowly. All these things that I've been doing, I've been doing almost the same thing since 1994. And it's just finally, it took 10 years for people to realize who I was. And then, you know, now 10 years later, people are seeing me in multiple language communities. And they're saying, well, how did Brian do this? Where did these ideas come from? I just had a lot and I played with them forever. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, that's a valid point too, like in financially and 
uh, knowledge wise to, to slow down and enjoy the journey. That's one thing that, um, I know myself, I've been trying to get out of, you know, I raced and raced and raced, you know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to reach what I felt was a level of success. And when you put yourself in that mindset, you never get there. You always keep drawing the finish line out further and further. And like in the, the recent years, I've started to kind of embrace that, that I'm, I'm working all the time. I'm missing out on, you know, family time. And that, that, that's the stuff that matters. And you can't get that back. And, you know, the past couple of years, I've been kind of going backwards. You know, I don't want or need as much money. I want to slow down. I, I want to, you know, be happy day to day, spend time with my family. But yeah, the, the knowledge thing, it, it kills. You constantly feel like you, you don't know enough. So you learn and you, you don't take a step at the end of the year and realize how far you've grown yourself because you've drawn that, that line out further. Maybe that's the, the hard part for beginners to understand is the, the nonlinear curve of measuring your success. You know, I, I agree with almost everything we've said. Everything starts really small and, you know, just having a, a tiny little Go API app that works against the DigitalOcean servers turns into DigitalOcean DO control, which I've seen countless people point out as one of the best examples of how to do an HTTP API client and go. Yay. So yeah, more than once I've heard people say, you know, if you're looking for a way to do an API client, go copy this code. And that's, you know, that's, that's, it didn't happen because you sat down one day and wrote the best code in the world. It happened because you did uglier stuff earlier and learned from it each time. And there's a progression for all of us that we forget. You know, it, it's easy to uh, forget that we were all in that spot some time ago and we're where we are today because of all of the things that we wrote before. And as a beginner, you don't have that experience. You don't understand that, you know, these these small steps each build upon each other and, and allow you to become better and better because you don't, you don't understand the scope of what you don't know. Yeah. And I think, so this is, if I were to write a book, this is what I would write a book about. And the neat thing is that this, what I'm talking about, it translates well to programming and specifically go, but it also translates to everywhere else in life. This is just, you know, if you want to have a religion of Brian, that's what it is. It's not my old religion where I, was um, characterized as someone who had a potty mouth, but this is the real religion of Brian. And actually, this is a, that's a great segue into something else that I wanted to talk about for where a lot of people know me from. Uh, about nine years ago, eight or nine years ago, I did a talk about testing because I was actually I'm actually really interested in testing as a theory because I think I don't think that um, just having tests makes your code any better. But I do think that the act of testing and thinking about how your code works does make you a better developer. So I like testing. I had this talk that was a sidebar talk at this conference. And he said, you have 10 minutes. And I said, well, and he says, make it good. And I said, all right. So I went back to my slides and I put an F-bomb every other slide. And not because I have a particularly bad mouth. And actually, I kind of think that I don't have a bad mouth. But what the point was is that if you see somebody on, on stage pointing at you, cursing like a sailor, you're going to listen to what they're saying. And what I happened to be talking about was not politics or anything crazy like that. It was testing. And I know, and I knew this was going to resonate, and it still resonates eight or nine years in, 
where people are saying, when I come work with me now, they're like, I know of you because you did test all the effing time. And I'm like, well, that's crazy. But do you realize what I did to you? I taught you something and you didn't even know it. And it's not about me talking about TDD or anything like that. What I did was I communicated the good passion that I felt about testing. And I gave that to you as a gift. And you took that gift and you want that feeling too. So you went and found out whether you liked it or you didn't like it. I'm not telling you to do TDD all the time. I really don't care. It's not my code. You don't work for me. But what, I, what I'm saying is that I want you to have those opinions. And I'm giving you the feel to go build those opinions. And that's what and that, I think that's been my method over these years. And that's why when you see these talks that I do, that's all I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to get you interested in something that you might not have known about. That's interesting. When I wrote my talk for abstractions, I wasn't trying to convey information. I was trying to convey my feeling about the outcome of a particular technology. And it, it's, it, it's almost exactly what you just said. You know, I didn't want people to learn about the subject that I talked about. I wanted people to understand the feeling that that subject gave me, because I think that was more important than the actual technology in my talk. Yes. And that's, and, you know, I've used that. And just recently, I spoke of abstractions as well, but um, I didn't go into it. But really what I was talking about during that whole entire talk was a finite state machine. But I wasn't using those words. I was just talking about it and what it allowed me to do and what this code allowed me to do. And I was able to do this and then I could easily do that. But to get those words out there and explain to somebody this concept without using those terms, that's what I find the big challenges. And that's why I like to speak. I uh, speak about bots. And it's not because I really care about chatbots. I kind of like them. But I like about all the technology that goes into them. If you have a chatbot and it goes to more than one server and you have multiple web sockets connecting because you're using Slack, how do you manage that? Guess what? That's a distributed systems programming problem. But I don't talk about it that way. I talk about it as I just have to have multiple binaries to have, um, and I need to orchestrate those over multiple machines or maybe multiple data centers. And that gets people excited whenever you talk in the language they like. And I'm getting older. I don't like all the hip things anymore. But um, I do, I will say that uh, I do know developers. And if we learn that developers, when we learn to talk to developers in a language they can understand, and it could be sometimes really, really technical from a paper. I can't read papers to make me fall asleep. But also to a, a very light conference talk. It's What we're trying to do is keep everybody or actually make everybody engaged so they can progress to the next goal. So that's, that's how I think about that. Well, this is a good time for us to take a quick break and talk about our sponsor today, which is Backtrace. If you're one of the over 10,000 people that tuned in to watch GopherCon live on Twitch, you can thank Backtrace for that sponsorship. A lot of software teams are using Backtrace to take the headache and guesswork out of debugging across all of their environments. When your application fails, Backtrace can jump into action, capturing detailed application state, including the states of your Go routines, which is kind of awesome. All of the information about your channels and the information about the scheduler. They can analyze this state and archive it in a central object store, which lets you explore all of the errors in your application and data mine. We all love data mining, don't we? Backtrace is in use by lots of cool companies like Carlesia's Fastly, Limelight Networks, Message Systems and App Nexus. Nexus. You can check out their website and their blog. If you go to gotime.backtrace.io, you can even start a free trial. We'd like to thank them for their sponsorship. Awesome. Yeah, so 
I actually remembered you from uh, Taft too, Brian, when you first uh, when when we first saw you at uh, GopherCon, we met. That's I, I remember it. How can you forget that video? Same here. <laughs> it's funny because I didn't remember Taft. I remembered Smarticus. I spent so much time reading Brian's blog posts about testing. That's true too. Yeah. Yeah, I used to blog. I don't, you know, this day Twitter killed the blog star. Um, <laughs> I really would love the blog again. I know a lot of people say that, but I just not in that mood anymore. But I would, I love to share. I do love to share. It's one of my favorite things. That's kind of why I like the podcast thing, the writing thing. Like I've never been a, a, a very good writer. And I, I struggle with kind of organization and in, I, I feel like I revise it too many times and then I just give up on po- finishing the post. But I like the freeform nature of the podcasting where you kind of just get to have conversations about stuff. It's a nice way to share all of my opinions without having people be able to comment on the, my blog either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, they will comment on their blogs, though. That's right. So you've been traveling a lot, Brian, uh, doing some talks at a number of conferences. You're doing LinuxCon, Velocity. I know you were at Abstractions. With, uh, yeah, I, did, I did all those. Um, so yeah, this year, I think I've spoken maybe 10 or 15 times. Wow. And then I have something coming up next week. I'll be in Buffalo at a conference called Code Days. And they're allowing me to give a keynote, which means I'm going to talk about anything specific. And I will not. And then uh, there's always the big conference web summit in Portugal this year in Lisbon. I'll be there in November. But is, the reason I do this, and I've been thinking about this over the last minute, is years ago, I heard something about the 10x developer. And I don't know why it really grinds my gears every time I hear that term. Um, I'm trying to be a 10x developer. And what I'm trying to do is be 10x, raise the, raise the group's productivity by 10x. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm a mentor or a motivator or an antagonizer, I can be an antagonizer. But that's really, it's why I do all this stuff. I really just want the community and whatever community I happen to be in, whether it's my home family community or you know my digital ocean work community or the greater programming communities, DevOps communities that I'm in, I would just like them to be better. That's, that's really all it comes down to. I want people to be the best that they can be. And then, you know what, at the end of the day, give me credit for it. And then we all win. Amen. Preach it. Yeah, so the 10X thing isn't actually as, as crazy now as it was. I remember when there was kind of that everybody wants a 10X developer. And I, I feel like even 10X people are not 10X people, right? You're 10X people for, for three days a week. And then you're half X person for the other two, right? It's impossible to sustain just that level of energy. And I think it's highly based on what you're working on. You know, if I'm presented with new and challenging problems, I'm an animal. You you give me like monotonous stuff. I'm just not nearly as productive because I'm not excited. Did you just call me a half-ass developer? (laughs) Half X. (laughs) Oh, half X. I'm sorry. I misheard. (laughs) This is a PG show, Brian. No, it doesn't have to be. I'm very <laughs> I try to be. I think that comes with age. You start, you start realizing that, you know, you don't sound professional or intelligent, you know, speaking those ways. And you only further, you know, other people talking that way. 
it, it's it's kind of contagious. You have people over and they're all swearing, so everybody else starts swearing, and it's just well, there's just so many better ways to uh, get a point across than swearing. Although I do agree, uh, that I don't remember who made the blog post. It might have been DHH. Somebody said something recently about uh, the science behind swearing and how it it does cause you to instantly pay attention to that particular topic. And I, I agree with that. I just don't think it's required most of the time. Maybe uh, if you need that to bring attention to what you're saying, perhaps you should be saying more interesting things. Well, that was the whole point of the test all the effing time because testing is boring inherently. <laughs> no one wants to do it, especially not in Go. I mean, I can, I can go back and forth about my, my perils of testing in Go. But I do want to bring, I want people to do it and not feel that just because it's hard to do it poorly or not at all. Because, you know, really, and I think this is one of the things that the Ruby community got really well, is that, yeah, we had a whole bunch of testing frameworks from RSpec to whatever else, but people thought about it. And in Go, I think we dismissed it kind of quickly with the whole no dependencies movement, where we just didn't even think about Hey, you know, Google is big. They have lots of engineers, lots of smart people. But guess what? They have not solved all the problems. AWS is still beating them in cloud. You know, other people are still competitive in other places. Google doesn't have all the answers. So we need to go out and find those answers because they can't even give us good dependency management. So why do you think they're going to give us good testing management? And that's not a dig. <laughs> that's just reality. I love you all. But are you saying the standard library test, the test package in the standard library is not good enough that we should be using others? How about this? I will say that it is not always good enough. I can, you know, I can do, I can do, um, I can compare two things. I can use, I can use deep equals. I can write out all that stuff. Or, you know, I could on other projects like I do in Doe, Control, Cuddle, CTL, whatever you want to call it. Um, what I do is I use the testify package and I use their mocking package. And is it better? I don't know. It makes me move smoother sometimes, but then there's things I can't do with it. So I, I, I hate that, you know, this is something that this is, this is the fallacy of smart people. We like to think that whatever we think as a smart person is the smartest thing, but that's not true. It might be the smartest in this situation, but who can account for all situations? So I would rather say that hey, you should try these things and find something that works for your team. And, you know, we do have the sticklers. And then we have the people who say, you know what, I'd rather be doing something else other than writing three-line test message or three-line test cases when I can just write one and move on. So I'm never going to say who's right and who's wrong. I'll say that we should be more pragmatic about it and not fall into dogma. Yeah, I like this philosophy of being pragmatic and Maybe because uh, the Go community is relatively still new, there is a lot of uh, purism and you're never sure if you should veer off the beaten path. Um, so it's good to hear that message too from experienced people. <laughs> it's religion. And, you know, I like, I, I like the concept of religions and I'm not anti-religious. I'm just not very religious myself. But I do feel that once you, someone gets on the soapbox and starts saying that we need to do it this way, or we need to do it that way, it's like the difference between Christianity, Ju Judaism, and Islam. There's, there are differences, but they're awful lot alike as well. And we need to work on celebrating our, our alike rather than our differences. That's a very good point. In the Ruby and Ruby on Rails community, they did an excellent job into, in bringing developers into the testing mentality. 
And I wanted to ask you, what, where does the Go community stand uh, as far as you can tell on the testing philosophy? You already gave some hints, but in the pr more practical terms, what do you see? Well, I will tell you this. I can go look at I can go to look at the github.com slash stretch r slash testify, and I'm sure there's a lot of stars there. That alone says that there's a lot of things going on. But then you have the other um, integration style testing things that are in Go. Yeah, they're a little bit weird. They're not quite Go. They use, um, I'm thinking of them, Omega, Gomega. Yeah, Gomega. Ginkgo yeah. and Gomega. It's a little weird, but guess what? It works. And then you have the one, then you have another one that's kind of like Gomega, but they have the cool little um, web page inversion of it. And Go it's convey. another, I'm, I'm thinking more of an integration style testing. What I'm saying is that not don't dismiss those. Understand the reason why they exist and why somebody would sit down and spend all that time writing them before saying you don't need that. That's the problem that I have with just you should do it this one way. Because guess what? It doesn't work this one way whenever we don't have all the other things exactly the same. And you know what? Adding a test dependency on testify or whatever else, is it a really a big deal? Probably not. Not as a big deal as you actually making a big deal about using it. It's something that can happen. And I, and I hate to get lost between those kind of differences rather than, hey, you know, we're actually doing too many allocations type things. And, you know, when we get lost in the, in the testing battle, we actually lose sight of what's, what's important. Well, it's, it's funny. The, um, the Ruby community was so strong on testing. That was such a big message, such a big thing that came out of Ruby and Rails. And I didn't like testing in Ruby and I didn't write tests in Ruby. And it wasn't until I came to Go where I actually learned to really enjoy testing. And now I often do TDD where previously I wouldn't even have considered that. I, I, you know, I just thought the whole idea of TDD was such a crazy religion. And I don't do it because I think there's... Um, business value to it. I do it because I think there's a practical value to it. Sometimes I don't know how I'm going to solve a problem. So I write a test to, to determine whether that problem solved and explore ways to do it and go help me get there far better than Ruby did, which is not a dig against Ruby at all, because it's really easy to test in Ruby. I just didn't enjoy testing in Ruby and I enjoy testing in Go, which is so strange. Yeah. And I'm not a you know, I like to do TDD, but sometimes I just write software and I'll go back. I'm, I have a project in front of me right now where I just started writing because I wasn't sure if my abstraction was right. And generally, whenever you get to the point where you're starting a lay down test, people are much more reluctant to, to change their ways. So I said, I'll just write for a little bit and I'll write some tests to make sure that some things are working right. And then I'll go back through and I'll have these high level tests to make sure that the application works right. And then I'll work down towards the units. And the reason I work like that is because it works for me. This is not a prescription for anyone. But what I'm saying is that we need to understand, once again, why do we have tests? What are tests for? Are we using them to prove correctness? I'm actually using it to make sure that I can move faster when I have to swap this whole HTTP library out that I used. Because I know it's going to mess up and I'm going to have to replace it with something else. I just want to make sure the rest of the code works whenever I swap it out. And that's, and that's the only reason I write tests. Because I don't trust future Brian. Or actually, I don't trust past Brian. He's a jerk. Past Brian, exactly. <laughs> it's always past Brian getting me in trouble. I like the safety of refactoring by having a test suite. 
Um, I've never been a hundred percent test coverage person because I think that that just it uh, it makes people write tests that just hit the code and they don't actually truly exercise the program. But I've also I've never adopted that whole red green refactor thing. Like that just felt, you know, not like typical programming workflow. I just never cared for it. I'm a little bit like you said. I'll develop some stuff. I'll I'll write some code that kind of tests it so that you know, as I'm adding new features, I don't have to keep going back and checking the things that I already knew worked. I can see when I break those by adding the new features. But I mean, that's about it. I mean, I try to get as best of test coverage as I can, but you know, I'm not going through testing every single edge case. And typically, you know, through the development and through the usage of an application, I'll throw in tests as um, issues come up, you know, to prevent regressions. But yeah, I, I like testing, but I'm not a test first all the time there's some problems where i will start with the unit test first you know and kind of build from there but there's other times like you said where i'll just i'll build the application first and then kind of start building some sanity checks yeah so um red green refactor is hard and i like how books have it and they're like that's how you do it i always use something different and i know this is valid because before jim warrick died he said brian this is a good idea and i stuck with this one so what i've done is I write a little code, and maybe I write a test first, or maybe I write a test last. I run the test, and hopefully it fails, because you never you should, you should try to make those tests fail. And then I change a little bit of code, and I run the test again. And I don't think about red-green refactor. I do red-green, 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 refactor, 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 refactor. I think once we start prescribing this method, this makes, does it make a lot of sense to people, and people start losing interest. Just remember, all we're trying to do is write code faster. And if I could write code fast with no test and it was 100% correct, would I write tests? No. Yeah, until uh, future Brian has to deal with past Brian and tries to refactor. <laughs> well, past Brian is a jerk, and we know past Brian's a jerk, so I don't expect any better. For me, one thing that I have adopted at some point, and since then I always use it, and it's been tremendously helpful, is to have the red there at some point. I don't care if I'm writing the test first or not, but making that test fail makes a huge difference because you could be writing and everything's passing. And guess what? It's not testing what you, what you think is testing. So making sure it fails with the proper case makes a difference because it happens. Sometimes you write a test to fail and it doesn't fail. And you, oh, oops, I'm not even testing what I thought I was testing. So there's also um, some unit test stuff. I know in Ruby they have it where I forgot the name of the library now where it inverts your test to basically make sure that it would fail uh, without it. But, the, you know, they have fuzzing tools and stuff like that. But I think that, so we talk about having those tests there for refactoring. Unless it's a large refactor that I have to do, it doesn't always bother me to, to write the tests before I do the refactoring. So if I'm looking at some library, some small library with, uh, you know, very little surface in the API, I'll write a test, test out a couple of scenarios that I want to make sure work. And then I go in and I refactor stuff. So it's not always a bad deal. But I, I think, like you said, the, the general consensus is we should test as much as we can, right? As, as much as it adds value to the project and to your development time and the safety there. You know, I think if you're on a large team and lots of people are touching the same code, I think it benefits you more to have a lot of test coverage. Because there's a lot of risk there that 
um, you know, I start stepping in and, and making changes, but then, you know, Brian and Carlisi are working on stuff and I break them because I'm not testing that the area that they're working on and stuff like that. So for large projects and large teams, I think it benefits more. And testing is something that it really pays off to learn how to do well. Without a doubt. Right? I'm not there yet. So I keep learning. But you, you look at a code base and it has a ton of tests and, you know, most of them are useless. And it's just, it, it, it consumes time from everybody that, you know, they have to read all of that. I mean, when I look at a, a new code base, the first thing I read is the test because it, it will tell me the business logics for the, for the system. And if you find everything is so convoluted and once you start learning the code base, you figure out, oh, these are all useless. It's a major waste of time. Yeah, I mean, if they're, if they're, not, if they're not valid tests, you know, they're just trying to hit lines of code and, you know, there's no point in having them. But I think the takeaway is, is you, should, you should try to test as best as you can. But if, if you've got like a one or two line function that does something very clear, formats a string or something... I don't know whether you should feel guilty that you didn't get 100% coverage because you didn't test that method, you know? And I'll just add one last thing for people that think about testing and they always say to me, I'm going to go look at the Go standard library and see how to test. You realize that if you were writing a standard library, that would be a good place to go look for tests. But if you're writing an application, uh, the, the way they do testing in a standard library is not always applicable to what you're doing. So really what we need to find in the community is better examples of how to do certain types of things like testing an application at this level. Like if you look at a project like Kubernetes, they have, it's, it's a little convoluted, but they have a good way of testing it. They have a great end-to-end set and they have a great set of unit tests. And they're, and they're pretty religious about that. And I'm not saying it's the right way, but if you want to look for something that's better than the standard library for application type things, look at Kubernetes. Yeah, that's fair. Because the standard library is mostly going to be unit test style. It's not really going to be end-to-end and integration tests where you have multiple components that need to be stood up and communicate with each other. And Yep. That's a very good point, Brian, because uh, I, have just started, I have just started to realize a lot of the blog posts out there, a lot of the examples, a lot of the sample codes are applicable to standard to libraries if you're writing a library, but if you're writing a, an application or an API, you have to do things a bit differently and it is different. So, and that's a good tip. So I, I'm definitely going to, need to look up that code base. So we need to take a break and talk about our next sponsor, Brian, I'd like it if you just closed your ears for a moment, please. So our, our sponsor, our second sponsor today is Linode. And their changelogs cloud server of choice. Uh, you could get a, a Linode cloud server up and running in just a few seconds. If you head to linode.com slash go time, you could choose your flavor of Linux, the resources you need, and the location of the nodes you want from eight different data centers spread across the world. They've got plans starting at $10 a month. They give you full root access so you can run containers or even your own private Git server. They offer native SSD storage, 40 gigabyte networking, and Intel E5 processors, kind of like Eric's beast of a desktop that he runs. <laughs> uh, GoTime20 will get you the two-month free $20 credit with unlimited uses, so you can share that with your friends. So thanks to Linode for their sponsorship, you can open your ears back up, Brian. Earmuffs. <laughs> <laughs> la, 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 la. 
you know, I will offer some commentary that'll be very positive. And I think a lot of developers need to understand this. Um, unless you own your company, like I don't own my company. I just work there for a paycheck. I like to hear about all the market, all the, all the stuff going on in our market that validates that our market works. It validates that what the ideas, the founders, the execs at my company are doing the right thing. But I'll tell you first, first, first thing, I speak for Brian Lyles, Brian B. Lyles. I don't speak for anyone else. And um, I think that more people need to realize that if you, are, you should champion yourself without trying to be a detriment to your employer. But realize that when push comes to shove, they're going to push you off because they need to win. And, and a lot of people don't realize that. The allegiance is with yourself and with your family. And you always need to make sure that you're going to come out on top without hurting anyone else. Don't be a jerk. But definitely think about that when you're moving forward. You already said that past Brian is a jerk. So. Past Brian is a jerk, <laughs> but he's not here anymore, so we can talk about him. Oh, and he's past Brian here. Past Brian isn't here because he was a jerk. That's right. Uh, we're talking about your company. How about the monorepo deal with DigitalOcean? Oh, let's talk about that. I'll give you the where that came from. Uh, since we we were doing Go, so let's say I did start doing Go after the first in twenty in, in middle of twenty fourteen. And we started doing Go. Everybody started doing Go. But the problem is, is that we had our internal GitHub, and then we had about 15 projects inside of there, and actually making sure everything mounted up just didn't work. So I remember us talking about this in the fall of 2014. But then what happened is uh, we, I ran into some Google people at a conference, and it was Gotham Go. And I happened to speak there and I just happened, and I said, I'm not going to lose this chance to talk to Google people about, like, how do y'all do this? Because what we're doing makes no sense. And I think your language is dumb because it doesn't provide these concepts for us. So they walked through how they did the monorepo and I took that information back and we converted our, what we do at DigitalOcean and we created this thing called Cthulhu. I didn't know what a Cthulhu was. I had to look it up. I'm not quite, I'm not quite sure I understand what it is now, but it's where our Go code goes. And really all it is, the monorepo is, and we don't do it quite like other projects do it. We have a, we have two go paths, or we have two items in our go path. The first item is our third party directory. And the second one is uh, where our, our do code goes. And really what we do is whenever you go get, the software goes into the first part of the path, which goes into our third party. And then on, underneath do code, we have, we have something called doge, which I'll talk about in a second. And then we have where all of our teams, they all confederate and do whatever they need to do. And so back to Doge, standard library in Ruby, uh, not in Ruby, the standard library in Go is actually pretty good. There's a lot of things in there. But unfortunately, it doesn't do a lot of things that we like to do. Um, we're pretty deep in things like gRPC. Um, we have the way that we log. We have the way that we do metrics. Um, so what we did is we wrote another standard library on top of the original standard library allows to do all those things. One day, you know, we might open source it. It's actually kind of neat kind of things we have in there. But what it allows us to do is you download the whole Go, the Go repo. It's like 300 megs. It's actually pretty big. But whenever you download it, you have the whole environment. And, and the, the reason that I like it, and then I'll tell you the reason that I hate it. The reason I like it is because it does allow us to use all the Go tooling on there. We have a custom version of Go imports because some people like um, crazy way of organizing imports. But also, it's, what I like about it is that when you make a change, 
We know if it's going to break. You could actually run the test for the whole entire environment on your box. Probably don't want to do that. because It'll take a little bit, but you can. And then when we reintegrate to master, we pretty much know if it's going to work or it's going to fail. There's no guessing. And that's what I think is the, is the real win is that it takes the guesswork. We know if all our Go tests pass. The bad side is that, yes, Go does compile quickly, but not if you have a metric crap ton of packages. It actually has to exact again and again and again and again and again. And so our Go test suite takes about 45 minutes. And what we did, and one day we'll open source this, it's almost there. We have a tool called um, GTA. And I don't know why it's called GTA. Somebody must have been a gamer. But really what it does, it just allows you to test the portion that just changed. So it actually goes through, it actually uses the Go type stuff to actually figure out what's changed and only touch the things in that graph. So if you touched a piece of software and then you touch something in our Doge, it would only compile those two things and, and test those things rather than testing the whole thing together. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and, and say that the name is Grand Test Auto. How's that? <laughs> yeah, we'll just say Grand Test Auto. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a weird thing, developers. Um, but I will say this. It's allowed us to move faster, but as we've grown to 100 engineers, it's actually made us it's made things slower because integrating people into it, getting new projects started has been difficult. But one thing we've done is created quite a bit of tooling around it to allow it to, to have owners with inside the mono repo and to make sure that the tests run fast and to make sure that we have a way to build artifacts out of, out of there. So it's, I will say this, please explore the mono repo. But realize that it's not a panacea because like having children, they're amazing when they come out that first second. But for the next three weeks or three months, they suck because they cry all the time. (laughs) Then they get older and they're amazing again. And that's about where we are right now. We're right at the point where it stopped crying and it's starting to get amazing again. And we can see where it's going to be a really awesome adult. Do you ever talk about breaking it out? Someone, people, some people talk about it. And I would say there are projects that aren't in the repo for reasons, you know, political or technical. But really, we're trying to, and, you know, just trying to make sure that everyone keeps it in there. I think for the, the greater good of the team, it's that we keep all the Go in the same place. And, you know, this is another thing that comes down to dependency management in Go. Since it's not, a, it's not a thing that we know about, it's not a solved problem for us, we chose to solve it by just locking everything in and versioning the dependencies along with everything else. So a question for you. What is your ratio of commits to uh, merge conflicts? Oh, merge conflicts? Never. Really? Never, never. No, we don't, we don't have merge conflicts because, and the way we, reason we don't is because if you think about it, we have our standard library doge and then all the teams. So in any particular section of the code, there might only be like three or four developers. It's not like everybody is in there killing everything at one time. So because we've had, it's one repo, but there's a lot of different action activity. I, Adam, I can't say this right. There's a lot of pieces that are being touched at once and not everybody, there's no hotspots inside the code base. Yeah, and I think the, so the mono repo thing though is, is much more popular than people think, especially in bigger companies. My first exposure to it was working for Disney. They had a, just a massive Perforce server and it had everything on there and not just the division of Disney I worked for, but, you know, the, the artists and things like that. Everything was in one place. And I thought it was odd at first, but, you know, the, the way all of that stuff works together and you can ensure the stuff. And 
the way I see it is it's like software, right? You have to look at coupling and cohesion, right? So if you've got two different repos that need to know a lot about each other and changes in one often require changes in the other, that becomes a beast to maintain. Like how do you submit a pull request, right? So um, Docker is one that I've contributed patch to and it's similar thing. It's like in one pull request, you have to mention a pull request in another repo that's required for this pull request to work. And it just becomes this, this a much bigger problem than it needs to be if kind of all those things lived in one one space. Yeah, that is true. I've, I've been there too. And you have to put a work in progress to not merge, please, until this one is merged. <laughs> then we can merge the other one. And we do that. We do. Sometimes it, you'll see a commit come through that it says, please do not merge. And no one merges it. But I think as long as communities are the teams talk about these things, it's okay. And, and the good thing about the, having the mono repo is that it defeats the tribal mentality that developers love to get information and then not share it. But if everybody's developing in the same repo, that tribe gets way larger and we don't have such tiny compartmentalized information. Like everybody, no one has to worry about the build system. You know how you get your stuff built? You just put it in this repo and it'll get built. You know how to do a binary? Put it, mention it in this JSON file and it'll get built and published. But I'll say one last cool thing is we don't have to worry about versions. We run, and internally, we don't do software versions. We just push out the latest thing, well, the latest working thing. How about all the peripheral work? For example, do you get build notifications for every single build? Yep, in a different Slack room called golang-build. And you just look for your name in there. Wow, that would drive me crazy. No, I just turn all the notifications. Actually, my Slack is weird. I turn notifications off for everything. I join all the channels and then turn all the notifications off. And then I can go look when I want to look. But generally, I only look in there whenever I care. And the only time that you will see a, a notification in the main Go room is whenever master build fails. Then that's important. But other than that, who cares? <laughs> One thing that I noticed with uh, a really large mono repo that I had a year or so ago, which was actually inspired by your post, was that the Go tooling uh, really slowed down. It, it became uh, much more difficult for things like uh, Vimgo and Go imports to work when you had such a gigantic code base. And oh, yeah. that, I found that really frustrating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will say that there's a couple like Go code and a few others don't like large code bases. It's a little bit slower. Um, I mean, I have my beefy um, Mac here with 32 gigs of memory and lots of CPU. It's pretty fast on this one, but on my laptop, it's, it's horrible. So what's the answer? The answer is that we need more people to use it like this. So someone can go in and fix Go code, to make it work better because you know, the person who wrote it maybe didn't look at a code base this big. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to not use those tools because it's a little slow. But also, I'll give you a hint here. And I know people are going to hate this, and my coworker is definitely going to hate this. Um, the stuff in Visual Studio Code, all the Go stuff in there, way faster than them. Yeah, Visual Studio Code is awesome. I won't disagree with you at all. And my coworker, Petit, actually writes them Go. And we have a, we have a, huge people, a huge number of people internally that use it. And I'm like one of the only stalwarts. And I'm like, I found this thing and it's amazing. I don't have to configure it. So I continue using that. And it's not that bad. Everything pretty much works. So sometimes when I rename, it's a little bit slower, but that's okay. I still haven't tried Visual Studio Code. And I know a lot of people rave about it. I'm just a creature of habit. 
I've tried it twice and I couldn't wrap my head around it. I use it in my training classes because it's a really easy thing to configure and uh, people can see what you're doing while you're clicking rather than wonder what you're doing while you're typing strange Vim movement commands. That's fair. Yep. So I think we're actually over time. So we should probably roll into free software Friday. And for anybody who's new, we basically try to uh, give shout outs to projects that uh, are currently or have made our lives easier in the past to show them love instead of just opening tickets when things don't work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think somebody somebody mentioned that we we should start opening tickets just just to uh, <laughs> tell them how much we love the project. But I, I feel like that would flood the uh, issue system. That was me. That was my blog post last November that started this whole thing. I said, just open a ticket and say, I love this project. Please close this ticket. And actually, I haven't had anybody complain about that because I do it a lot. So I'll, I'll kick this off. My free software Friday mention for the day is PFSense open source router firewall. I've been running one for, I don't know, three or four years now. And every time I have to touch it, it just makes me happy because it, it's so fast. It works so well and it's got so many awesome tools built into it. I can see what the heck my kids are doing. It's a great thing. So thank you to everybody who is behind the PFSense open source router and firewall. Yeah, it's got a nice web interface. You can do IPsec VPN. It's built on top of FreeBSD, but uh, it's got uh, IDS and IPS in there. Snort's built in. Lots of, oh, yeah. It's good. And good stuff. they're relatively inexpensive. You can put them to get, put them on, uh, you know, a small Intel Atom, you know, computer in your closet, or you can buy one that's pre-built with FreeBSD already loaded or with the PFSense already loaded on there. So yeah, for a home firewall, if you want, if you want something, uh, and I guess they're, I mean, they're used even outside of, uh, outside of home oh, yeah. there's a lot of businesses that use them just because they're cost effective and powerful and you can put it on yeah you can put it on your own beefy box if you want to how about you carlicia i don't have one today okay i have one i've been dealing with it a lot <laughs> uh ansible i love ansible and i still struggle too because every like puppet and everything like everything kind of has its own appeal but I'm still just a big fan of, of building out scripts for deployment and stuff using Ansible. I love Ansible too. I'm with you there. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Ansible. I use it quite a bit and I do like it. Yeah. The hardest part I think is just managing all this stuff. Like when you have like these complex build outs, you know, like for, for example, like doing a Kubernetes cluster, right? There's just so many components and certificates that need to be set up and Docker and, you know, Flannel or open controller. Well, the secret is to use modules. So have a common module, have a Kubernetes master module, have a Kubernetes node module, and 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 use use it in a more modular fashion rather than having some long YAML file because then you'll get confused. Yeah, which is basically what I do, and then I you know I'll have defaults within the modules, and then I'll override them up in my uh, inventory files or, or group files. Yeah, Ansible is nice because you can you can get a lot done without knowing a ton about Ansible. Uh, it it's when you want to get really crazy complicated that it, it's harder. But I it's it's more than enough for what I need, and I, I enjoy that. How about you, Brian? Any any shout outs you want to give? Oh, okay, so I'm not choosing a project. I'm choosing a person and a blog series. Uh, ben Johnson done 
a lot of things in RubyLand, BoltDB, um, making Influx better, a few other things. He's written this, he's writing this series about Go standard library. So the, the last one came out about two hours ago. It's about strevcom. I don't know how you guys say it. I say it strevcom, but S-T-R-C-O-M-V. It just goes through it and says, this is how it works. This is how you would use it. This is why this is there. And it's kind of neat because we with with Ruby with Go, I'm saying this, with Go, we got the standard library, we got the language document, and then we got this getting started guide. But we never understood why things are there. And this kind of explains all the different pieces way better than the documentation does. And I'm very thankful for him making this series. Yeah, we actually had him on the last uh, not the last episode, but the one before, the one that basically just got released. Um, and we were talking to him about these things and we love these walkthroughs. And it was, it's, it was actually kind of surprising because it was a shift from, you know, the types of stuff that Ben's been talking about. Uh, you know, first year at GopherCon, he was talking about uh, high performance databases and stuff. The second year he spoke about uh, static single assignment. And uh, now here's kind of like a back to the basics and let's, let's break down the, the standard library and what's in there and how do we use it and why do we use it? And yeah, I'm, I'm loving this series. I have not seen the first one. I didn't see it or the last, the latest one. That's because we've been recording. Not for three hours. We haven't. <laughs> uh, so I think that is it. Unless Carlicia thought of one at the last minute. No, I can press one. What Brian, that Brian Lyle said. That works. Ben Johnson's posts are awesome. Yeah. I love all the, these posts like this. And I'm really loving that we've reached a point in the community's growth that we're just, we're seeing a lot more content now than we have in prior years. Lots of people are stepping up and talking about things. And, and you know, um, I love uh, all the new stuff by Dave Cheney with the solid design and like all these things, you, you remember, Brian, like coming from the Ruby world, like all that stuff was exciting. We were talking about patterns and, and things like that, testing. and People hate it, but we need it as a community. And that's, it's just, it's a great place for us to be right now. Amen. Yes. And we're going to have uh, Aaron and I can't pronounce his last name on the show. And we're going to talk about sign patterns. I'm looking forward to that. Yes, that will be next week. Yes. So with that, I guess we have to say goodbye. At some point, we have to. So we're out of time. Uh, I want to thank everybody on the show. I especially want to thank uh, Brian for coming on the show and talking to us about all the great topics today. Uh, thanks, everybody who's listening now. Um, if you're not subscribed, you can go to gotime.fm. Uh, we will be setting up a weekly email at some point. We're, we're kind of acquiring content at the moment. You can follow us on Twitter at gotime.fm. Uh, and hit us up on our GitHub, which is github.com slash gotimefm slash ping. If you want to be on the show or you want to recommend a guest or have questions with that, uh, goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Thanks, Brian. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Brian.